weekly analysis of national politics with occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by UIC Administrator Phil Beverly, Chicago Kent College of Law Professor Peter Hanna, Kenton McCarthy, financial advisor from Arizona, and Joe Morris, the former Assistant Attorney General of the United States. Good evening, everyone. Our program is coming coming to you from our home base at WCGO in Evanston, Illinois. Nice to have you with us. Phone lines open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. And uh, we'd like to hear from you from all over the country this evening. And uh, I want to begin, by the way, this is a, uh, I would say this, we're, we're chock full. There's so many issues and to discuss this evening, and I think we have a great panel of four guests uh, to uh, talk about it. But I want to begin with uh, the thing probably that they're talking about around the water coolers of America, and that is the decision by the CDC uh, to basically say if you have been double vaccinated, uh, you don't have to wear your mask inside or outside. And again, that decision came rather quickly. And I want to get just reaction from everyone. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to begin with you, uh, Joe Morris, because you joined me in studio. Um, uh, is this a clear message to you? And, and, and what does the quickness of this decision, after basically forcing masks around everybody's face for well over a year, what does it say to you about the whole process? Well, it, uh, I think it's about time. Uh, I'm certainly ready. I suspect most people are ready. I'm vaccinated, um, but I, I think uh, the science of the matter has always been something questioned by the scientists and the professionals. It's always been an unclear matter as to whether or not the, the, the masks, um, as, as they've been used for the last uh, 14 months or so, have been as effective as people have imagined them to be. It will certainly be very interesting when all this is said and done to see how the historians and the medical historians uh, review this period. I think that there was a great deal of excess in terms of the precautions that we've taken, far outstripping the needs uh, to keep people safe. Peter Hanna, uh, you're one of our card-carrying liberals this evening, uh, but you've also been critical of the administration, uh, uh, regardless of which one it is. Uh, how do you view the this decision, which most people like, but a lot of people are still uh, questioning uh, questioning it and the timing of it. Yeah. Um, first, Bruce, thanks for having me. Uh, it's always a pleasure, and, and really nice to see the other guests here. Uh, second, you know, please please don't ever offend me by calling me a liberal. I feel like that's the <laughs> highest form of offense. That's I, I can't ever no, say I know, I know. that about my worst enemy. Um, <laughs> but I am on the left for sure. Uh, but uh, it's just not how I identify. But as for the question of masks, I mean, it, to me, um, as soon as news of this pandemic started in China. Um, I sort of, I'm not a medical expert, but I, I, once I learned it was a respiratory disease, I started wearing a mask pretty much immediately in January of 2020. Um, I think, I think there has been some politics played with masks when Trump was in office and now when Biden is in office, um, which is unfortunate because a respiratory airborne illness is, you know, you can reduce the likelihood of getting catching it if you wear a mask. Um, so I think that that's unfortunate how the mask wearing has been politicized, but, uh, I understand people on on all sides of the ideological spectrum being sort of befuddled by this, and it it kind of demonstrates again how the government, under both administrations, politicized mask wear. 
Ken McCarthy, let's go west to uh, Arizona, where you're standing by this evening, and uh, your reaction to this, because you've certainly been very critical of uh, uh, the administration. Kenton, are you there? Turn your microphone on. Uh, are you there? Uh, we are not getting Kenton McCarthy in the conversation, so let's go to Phil Beverly and see if uh, you're connecting with us. Phil, are you there? I am. Can you hear me, Bruce? Go ahead. Well, we can hear you, and now we'll hopefully see you. So the 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 issue that I, I had people that I've been talking to about this was really just a timing issue. There was like no warning. It's just, oh, guess what we're doing today mm -hmm. after all these months. And usually the thing that I think about in, when there's a political thing is that there's going to be something that leads up to this, that later this week, we'll have an announcement on, and then they're doing stuff on, on background and on deep background, and, and none of that happened. It was very surprising. And so it looks like it, it just makes it look sort of suspect. Like, is there some other reason beside public health that we're doing this for? And that's, you know, that's sort of my, my only concern. Is this trying to blunt some political criticism that's coming about some other decision? I don't know. Who was supposed, let me go back to Kenton and see if you, Kenton, are you, can you hear us now? Or can we hear you? You're muted, Kenton. Kenton, are you muted? No, I'm not muted. Okay, go ahead. Please speak so we know you're there. Okay, I'm here. Well, can speak. you hear me? Yeah, speak, please. Give give us an answer to any question that I've asked. Oh, okay. Well, a uh, long time ago on this show, I think it was March of 2020, I said that a pandemic is much too serious a matter to be entrusted to doctors. And that's been proven true. <laughs> the problem is, was worsened because it was hijacked up by politicians and po politicians who find little, little reason to be petty authoritarians and think they know what they're doing and issue these draconian lockdowns, which have done nothing but destroy economies, livelihoods, careers, and so on. Why do you think they're doing what they're doing now? Then? Now it's become a full-blown political polling. They, they, they were, Joe Biden, to the extent he's got good poll numbers, they're propped up by the vaccine response and the decent efforts put forward there. If that collapses, when that goes away, there's not going to be much left to prop up the poll numbers. And I think they were just, they, they sensed that there was a movement, there was a, there was a quiet color revolution out there in school districts that was on the cusp of fighting back and pushing back to the point where they couldn't control these mask mandates any longer because we've got mask fatigue. We have pandemic fatigue and we have mask fatigue. And the American people are pretty much sick and tired of being sick and tired. Uh, Joe, is, is it unfair for uh, the CDC now basically to put the, the onus of enforcing this on individual uh, companies and, 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 and municipalities uh, because they're, they're supposed to trust everybody that they are really indeed uh, double vaccinated? Well, there's really no alternative. Uh, this is a, this is not a totalitarian society, after all. Uh, we can't be sending uh, the police to check every door and every schoolroom and every office building and so forth. 
Uh, we have to trust people to look after themselves, uh, which is the ordinary way a democracy like America ought to work. Uh, the CDC has not particularly covered itself with glory from the beginning of this uh, episode, nor has the NIH and Dr. Fauci. Remember, it was about a year ago, Dr. Fauci was expressing skepticism as to whether or not masks were necessary. There was uh, an initial report from Dr. Fauci recommending that people not wear masks. Uh, obviously, science changes. It ought to change depending on what data show. Uh, science ought to be data-driven, not faith-driven, but driven by testable information. So it's not surprising that the guidance that comes from physicians and scientists would change as mm -hmm. the data, as the information changes, as analysis change, okay. and so forth. But it's politicians who politicize it. we got to pause. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly from Chicago. I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one -on -one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Wish you were here. Words we've often seen on postcards and letters from friends and family. Luckily, there's an entire state that whispers, wish you were here. Climbing my dunes, sailing on my breezes, walking along my beaches, and getting lost and found in my forests. This is a postcard from Michigan, where wishing you were here is the heart of pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Back in Evanston, Illinois, thank you very much for joining us tonight, 1-800-723-8289. Uh, we've been talking about the, the mask mandate, and uh, if you want to weigh in on it. And, uh, you know, the other thing is that only a third of Americans have both vaccinations. And so you're building a policy on, on a relatively small group of people, and you're saying to them, you know what, congratulations on what you did. Uh, you can take the mask off. You don't have to wear it inside or outside. Although individual operations, including the building where I live, we still have to wear that mask. So, again, there are condo associations and there's all kinds of people that are still going to require you to wear that mask, at least until they, they weigh in on this. And, again, uh, we still have a, a goodly number of Americans who are dying from this. So it, it's this, this seems to me like one of the most cocked-up government policies and implementations that, that I can remember in a long, long time. I want to switch gears, however, and go to something else that uh, it obviously dominated news this week. And, and my fear is that it's going to dominate news in the future. And uh, I want to turn to you, uh, Peter Hanna, because uh, you are one of your areas of expertise is cybersecurity. And I want to get your reaction to uh, the colonial uh, pipeline issue and the fact that uh, uh, the company agreed to pay $5 million uh, in ransom. What, what do you think uh, of it, and how also should we respond to it? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very glad you asked. I mean, I think while uh, some people are saying, you know, oh, we can't spend money, public money on infrastructure, this is a waste, let's, in, you know, give this to the private sector and blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, we have a lot of things that are actually locked in the public sector. Um, and we have a decaying and archaic uh, digital infrastructure um, that allows, you know, the program that I'm not entirely sure which one the hackers use at Colonial Pipeline, but my guess is it wasn't a particularly sophisticated one. Um, we need to invest money in our infrastructure, both the physical parts of it and the electronic parts of it, uh, for reasons that I think should be obvious to every American. Um, the fact that this happened and, uh, you know, ultimately the taxpayers had to pay $5 million because these, you know, Colonial Pipeline couldn't get their act together in time to avoid what was probably you know, a basic attack on a Windows machine somewhere. Um, it's just a testament to the fact that we are way, way, way behind and we need to get moving. Kenton McCarthy, do you agree with that, that we are behind the eight ball when it comes to uh, uh, cyber uh, warfare? Yeah, yeah. one of the most terrifying books I've read in the last 10 years was Lights Out by Ted Koppel when he talks about mm -hmm, right. the vulnerability of our power grid to cyber attacks. Is it, that is a terrifying um, truly book. What, <laughs> sorry, Ken. <laughs> it'll, it'll keep you up at night. But I, here's, here's how I look at the colonial thing. I, you know, ransomware is common and it, we, we know it exists. But if it's done by foreign actors and they know the vulnerability of the nation when you shut down a pipeline that pumps 25% of the gas to the East Coast, to me, that's terrorism. That is a terrorist act on a foreign nation and on our sovereignty, and we have to treat it as such. I go one step further and say, well, the same week that happened, you have the governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer, who wants to destroy an existing pipeline in her state that pumps uh, oil and gas into the state of Michigan. To me, that's domestic terrorism. If, if shutting down colonial pipeline is foreign terrorism, then shutting down a domestic pipeline in Michigan is domestic terrorism, and they both should be treated as such. Phil, a question to you. Uh, the, the book by, uh, by Ted Koppel, which our guests have referenced, uh, that book was written five or six years ago. Uh, did no one read that book? I mean, obviously we have a couple of guests here, but did no one with real power or input into the government read that book? Because uh, it, it, it appears at least the people involved in this incident, and there were several incidents last week, Colonial uh, Pipeline was just the biggest one. Uh, has everybody been asleep at the switch on this matter, both Republicans and Democrats? Yes. Yes, and this is the uh, the Colonial Pipeline attack. I, I just want to point out, and Kenton, you're probably already aware, there have been several of these attacks, right. not of this magnitude. Uh, you know, the city of Baltimore, I think, ended up having to spend something like eight, eighteen, or fifteen million dollars in cybersecurity experts to unlock, you know, their like traffic software or something. Um, this happens way too frequently, uh, and not surprisingly, Democrats and Republicans, uh, and you know my feelings about both parties are uh, extremely negative, have failed, um, have failed the American people again and again, because the one thing both parties have in common is obviously the overwhelming focus on, you know, money. Um, and they're not focusing on actually making ordinary Americans' lives better by improving infrastructure and avoiding these cyber attacks. Bill Beverly, that uh, question was to you, so I want to let you tackle it, and then I want to get Joe's response. I think there's a there's a real political challenge here as well, because if the if the Democrats propose something 
that that mandates because there's there was no mandate for energy companies like like Colonial to put the sort of cybersecurity protections in place that they need that may exist in other industries, then it looks like, oh, it's overregulation, and we're going to hear that nonsense from the right. If the right says it, oh, it's too much big brother, and they're going to get complaints from, from their corporate masters about, oh, this is going to cost us too much. So I think both sides are, are a bit reluctant to, to do what's necessary to protect. It's not just infrastructure. The, the Department of Homeland Security considers this critical infrastructure, right. which has a, a, a different sort of connotation and legal standing in, in the homeland security arena. So protection of critical infrastructure, both, both parties have been asleep at the switch. Administrations, going back to, to probably Clinton, have, have not done what's required to, to, to make sure and take the political hit. So if you're a Democratic president, you say, no, we're going to do this. And Mitch McConnell, go sit down somewhere. If you're a Republican president, you got to say, Nancy, no, we're not, I, I, we can't hear that right now. This is critical infrastructure. But nobody's got the political will or guts to take the other party on and just tell them, you know, you're going to be wrong. Shut your mouth. We need to do this. Joe Morris, your reaction. Well, I certainly agree that Bruce, Bruce, just a second. Joe Morris is on. Go, Joe. I, I certainly agree that both parties over the last several administrations have been at fault for not paying serious attention to this problem. Perhaps the, the greatest uh, travesty occurred during the Obama administration when three governments, the governments of China in particular, as well as those of Russia and North Carolina, uh, North uh, Korea, excuse me, uh, 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 massively invaded databases of the United States government mm-hmm. itself. The, the Chinese stole all, I repeat, all of the personnel records of the United States retirement system maintained by the Office of Personnel Management, which includes all the personnel, health, uh, life insurance, uh, health claims, uh, personal background information. This included the the attack on Sony as well, did it not? That was by North Korea at around the same time. But this was on the United States government itself. They they obtained millions of records on, on virtually every federal employee executive branch, legislative branch, including elected members of Congress and the judiciary for the last uh, 20 to 30 years, all of those records that have been digitized. The Chinese have uploaded and downloaded all of that information to their system. Uh, This is not so much a question of infrastructure as Joe Biden means infrastructure in the legislation that's pending these days, which is simply looking at money to throw sort of willy-nilly at so-called shovel-ready projects. Uh, One of my colleagues here is calling it critical infrastructure. It's really more in the order of defense uh, but the targets include both the public sector and the private sector. I would not, uh, if I were in the private sector safeguarding uh, uh, precious, uh, sensitive uh, information necessary to the conduct of a business, I would not wait for the leadership of government. The insurers who have more of a stake, uh, perhaps, than anybody else in, 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 in making sure that private sector management of, of extremely sensitive databases uh, is <coughs> secure – uh, are advising people all over the place on ways in which to secure those databases that don't depend on the tender mercies uh, of the United States government. It was known when Donald Trump took office, succeeding Barack Obama, uh, that the Obama administration had failed miserably to secure the information assets of the United States government. And I'm sorry to say that the Trump administration in its four years didn't do much uh, to close that barn door. And of course, the nature of data is it's constantly being refreshed and the techniques and the science of attacking that data 
held by foreign governments, terrorists, and uh, those uh, private criminals who exploit weaknesses. It's constantly evolving. But also on the on the payment of, of ransom, doesn't this encourage more people or more uh, entities to try it, uh, Peter? I mean, why why would anyone stop? I'm surprised. I'm surprised they only wanted five million dollars for all this. You know, it's um, it, it's sort of a risk reward situation. I think you have to first, like, it's not, it's not, it's you know, it's easy once you can get on the system to hack these government systems or uh, you know bring them down, especially if they're operating on outdated software, don't have the necessary cybersecurity controls. You know, the hard part is usually like the initial infiltration. Like, do I know someone there? And am I willing to possibly look at terrorist charges, you know, terrorist crimes if this succeeds? So there's a, a pretty strong disincentive. But the fact of the matter remains, the actual systems themselves largely are not secure. Um, and uh, to the point that, that um, you know, the, that we were just talking about, you know, critical infrastructure is not just the term that, you know, um, the, we're throwing around that. The Department of Homeland Security has designated 16 sectors, quote unquote, critical infrastructure. And that means they have to have certain requirements to protect them, electronic controls, physical controls, et cetera. Um, so the fact that the Colonial Pipeline uh, lacked these controls, which definitely would have prevented this, because ransomware is you know, pretty easy to avoid you know, getting into your system if you have those controls. Um, the fact that they lacked it shows that you know, there is a pretty broad dereliction of duty somewhere in the chain of command. Okay, we're going to pause. 1-800-723-8029. I'm Bruce Dumont. Back shortly with more comments and hopefully your questions at 1-800-723-8289. Today, millions of people all across America are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family and community lending their strength and support. Join the voices for recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24 hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders for you or someone, you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Fourteen clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees, it doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls. Not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, 1-800-723-8289. We'll take calls uh, in just a moment, but we're going to take a moment here to let each of our guests introduce themselves, give us a little 15-second bio on who they are, and we're going to begin with our in-studio guest, uh, Joe Morris. Joe? Oh, thanks, Bruce. One second. Let's turn his microphone on now. Go ahead, Joe. Can I be heard now? Yes, go ahead. I'm, I'm a lawyer. I live in Chicago. I practice here in a small firm that also has an office in London. Uh, I uh, served under President Reagan in a variety of positions in the Justice Department. I was the chief of staff and the general counsel at USIA, and I was also the head lawyer for the U.S. 
civil service system. Uh, I also chair the uh, Heartland Institute, which is one of the world's, I'd like to think, one of the world's more important and, and more credible think tanks headquartered mm-hmm. here in the Chicago area. Right. Um, and it, it's a d- delighted to be back uh, with you on uh, Beyond the Beltway. And you've been on this program for well over, what, 15, almost 20 years? Probably 20 years or more. Yeah, yeah a long, long time. Let's go to Kenton McCarthy because I think uh, your longevity with this program is about the same, right, Kenton? It is. Since uh, 1992. 90, Okay. Tell us who you are because, you know what, so, we're yeah, having a problem. To, uh, just to let you know, we're having a problem. There's a little delay between uh, my asking a question and you responding or you not hearing it. So um, tell us a little bit about okay. who you are and uh, what you're up to in, in, in real life. Yeah, as, as we talked about before the show started, you know my dad. You knew him uh, probably before I knew him. So you, you two go way back. I grew up in DuPage County. I was a Wall Street Journal, National Review, Cato-type Republican. And all three of those I've dismissed and rejected. I'm now a full-blown economic nationalist and populist. And I'm, uh, I'm not as much a fan of Trump as I am Trumpism. Um, and I, I help... I named my company Vulcan, which you know the name, because mm-hmm. that was the family business for since 1916. Right. But I help cities and counties and public bodies manage their portfolios. Okay. Let's go to Peter Hanna. Peter, tell us a little bit about uh, who you who you are. Sure. My name is uh, Peter Hanna, and and uh, always pleased and, and and grateful to be on the show with you, uh, Bruce, and, and your guests. Um, I am. I would identify as someone on the left, progressive, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I teach law as an adjunct professor at Chicago Kent School of Law. I've been an attorney for many years. Uh, I'm also an activist. I work with legislators, lawmakers. Um, I've uh, clerked for a federal judge. Um, have a broad range of, you know, legal experience. I would say in a bunch of different areas. But my focus has been primarily on areas relating to technology and civil rights, uh, constitutional law, and, and policing and such. So and yeah, born, it's always a pleasure to be here. Born in Egypt, uh, came to the United States with your parents, and uh, when did you become a citizen? Um, I think I was seven. So I came when I was about two, and uh, you know, it's a pretty fast process, I guess. But mm-hmm. uh, five or six years later, I, I, uh, I didn't take the oath my parents did, but I, I got the naturalization certificate somewhere with a picture of uh, a much cuter version of me. Okay. <laughs> and Phil Beverly, you've been on the program for well over 20 years as well, but tell everybody uh, about your uh, background and your uh, new responsibilities. Um, I spent about 30 years at Chicago state before leaving on the 15th of this month, which was effective yesterday. Uh, I'm an administrator and assistant vice provost at University of Illinois, Chicago now. Uh, disciplinary uh, areas, political science, American uh, politics, processes, institutions. My uh, sort of favorite thing now is actually Homeland Security and uh, emergency management. Mm-hmm. I want to come back to that in just a moment, but again, a, a frequent guest in the last several months on this program uh, is a very articulate community organizer out on the west side uh, by the name of Willie Preston, and uh, Willie told me the other day that uh, you first introduced him to this program when he was a student of yours 
about 15 years ago. So thank you very much for not only giving us a good listener, but also a good uh, participant in the broadcast. I, I, I want to pick up on the subject of you know Homeland Security for you and the, the broader question. Uh, what what the Russian folks did, first of all, Joe Biden said he didn't think Russia uh, was involved in this, that it was just some hackers from Russia. Does everybody believe that? Phil Beverly, do you believe that, that this was purely a a rogue group from, from Russia, not with any fingerprints from Putin on it? So uh, I think that that what uh, Putin is really skilled at is using non-state actors to do this. Uh, but he's got that country such on such lockdown that, of course, of course, if there's something that could impact his country, he's going to know about it. And anybody in that industry is going to know. So he contracted it out. So you can say, oh, no, it wasn't our guys in, in FSB or, you know, whatever. It, it, it was them. And we're looking into it. But them is them. They're all the same. Technically, no, it wasn't the Russian government. Realistically, yeah, it was. It was Joe crazy. Morris, is this? Uh, would you agree with that analysis? I would agree with that analysis, hundred uh, percent. Mr. Putin is in charge of the Russian government. The Russian government is in charge of the uh, criminal uh, uh, mafia uh, that has privatized uh, a lot of the this uh, nefarious activity on, on on the part of the government. It provides a little bit of uh, distance, uh, you know, plausible deniability uh, in terms of the uh, the media. Uh, but uh, anybody who knows how the Russian system actually works, uh, there's no deniability there. Uh, uh, Kendon, is- Ma- Kendon McCarthy, is this uh, does this show a weakness on the part of Joe Biden, or does it show a uh, a diplomatic side that uh, you know he's trapped and can't really say what uh, maybe he and his intelligence officers are telling him? Well, I can't speak for Joe Biden, and I don't think Joe Biden can speak for Joe Biden either. But what was interesting was the original take from Jen Psaki was that this was a private company. I mean, they they, they almost took a libertarian viewpoint, and they said, mm-hmm. this is a private company. It's up to them to decide to pay ransomware and so on. But I'm in the Peter camp that if you go back to 2008, and I'm no fan of commissions or Wall Street, but after the GFC, at least they walk through the process to say, what does systemic risk in the banking industry look like and how do we prevent it from ever arising? I think we need to do the same thing with infrastructure. And if we designate certain utilities or companies or sectors as vital national security interests, I think it's well worth the government stepping in and say, how do we create a framework under which all these companies can operate so that a colonial doesn't happen again. And if it's shared technology, if there's a little bit of federal intrusiveness onto corporate balance sheets, I actually don't care. Like I said, I've left my Cato days behind. But this is critical. When you shut off infrastructure, that is a terrorist act. And those companies need the capital and the framework to create a more protected environment for the citizens. Peter, was this an act of war? Um, no. And, you know, I, I'm sort of surprised by a lot of what I've read in the media that makes it sound like, oh, man, this is this is uh, this is Putin, et cetera, et cetera. It probably is. I mean, I don't think Putin was sitting in uh, 
you know, the Kremlin, like, you know, thinking like what next? Um, but, you know, this is how espionage works. Amer we, America, we've funded tons of private actors across the world to help us with our aims, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, sometimes, you know, covertly and sometimes in wet works and, you know, uh, like, you know, money that is untraceable. So, I mean, that's kind of the nature of the world right now. And, you know, the cyber world in which we're all sort of, I mean, this, this very, you know, show is being conducted. It's all sort of murky. So we're going to have more and more of these kind of murky situations where when it's politically expedient, right, they're going to hammer the, you know, it's war, like this is a national defense thing. And when it's not, they won't. And I guess right now, for whatever reason, to Joe Biden, it's not. But ultimately, yeah, I think it's it's not an act of war um, unless the political you know power in place decides it wants to say it is. Um, otherwise, it's probably just a bunch of hackers who are acting, if not with the overt like you know uh, request of the Kremlin of you know Putin, yeah. with the acceptance that these people are doing this thing in Russia. Joe Morris, do you think it's an act of war? I think it may be. I certainly think that over the last couple of years, what we've been seeing is a very severe testing of the modern technological environment and its interplay with our security. Our, our enemies, and let's not fool ourselves, we have enemies. Uh, we have ideological enemies, enemies who want to shut down our freedom and our economic success. Uh, these enemies are testing around the margins to see what our vulnerabilities are. And they've certainly learned a couple of very big lessons in just the last couple of years. We can shut down an entire economy with a virus, and, uh, and you can call into question a very, very important part of the energy infrastructure with the manipulation of uh, uh, just a few electronic switches. Kenton, mm -hmm. do you agree with that? I do, wholeheartedly. Okay, well, that was a, that was a quick, short answer. 1-800-723-8289 uh, <laughs> is the phone number. I'm Bruce Dumont, back shortly from Evanston, Illinois. I got to hear the music. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As hey, parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their <laughs> I health actually heard as the they music become too. young adults. And that's why one I, way to yeah. do that is to make sure they oh, have one-on-one on one time with their pediatrician. That helps them. You heard the music or couldn't hear the music with their doctors and with uh, you. So make no, sure I heard it when he asked when he asked me the question. I heard it in the background, so I knew we were wrapping up. That's why. I gave a really brief answer. Oh, okay. Well, um, I'm going to adjust Along some things. Thanks for letting me know. The unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Bellway. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's go to David, who's listening to us tonight in San Francisco. Go ahead, David. Are you there? David, on line three, are you there? Yeah, much better. There's that little beep. There we uh, go. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I, I remember it's going on 20 years ago now that 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. And immediately afterward, when the Patriot Act was developed and all sorts of internal security were developed for the, uh, for the nation, it was seen that uh, power structures, you know, nuclear power plants, coal-fired plants, uh, in this case a pipeline, that they had to have an internal electrical system one that was not online, so that they couldn't be hacked. So I'm wondering, out here in California, we've had a real problem with PG&E, who get huge grants to be able to develop something like that, uh, who take uh, tax write-offs for keeping that maintained. And in this ca- in the case of this pipeline, did they... Uh, did they take money to develop an internal electrical system that could not be hacked, and they didn't do it, and then uh, basically created a fraud on the American public because they pocketed that uh, tax deduction uh, as, as personal gain. In the case of Pacific Gas and Electric, they've done that to us time and time again. They blew up the city of San Bruno with a gas pipeline that they claimed that they inspected every year for 30, 40 years, and they never did it. They claimed that they uh, trimmed the trees against the power poles, and they never did it, pocketed the money that they claimed they spent on it. And so in the case of this pipeline, did they develop what, uh, what was supposed to be an internal electrical system that could not be hacked, and then just pocketed the money uh, and didn't uh, didn't protect America's grid. Uh, Kenton McCarthy, do you want to weigh in on uh, David's observation? Yeah, that's actually pretty intuitive. But the, and Joe can probably talk about it further. Unless there was some sort of regulatory guideline that forced them to start to develop a tighter infrastructure and anti-hacking system, if they, if, if it was on an eternal corporate wish list and they didn't go along with it because of costs or whatever, that's, it, it, it's difficult to go after them for that. But if there was some insurance guideline or regulatory guideline or some sort of federal document that said you need to be up to snuff from a compliance standpoint, then that puts them in a very vulnerable legal position. Joe, comment? Well, I, I agree with that generally. I think, in fact, what happened here, if, if I'm, if my recollection of the facts is correct, is there were federal and and California state subsidies uh, that went to this and other firms, PG PG and E in particular, to harden their operations. Uh, the sad thing is, I would not trust either the governments of the United States or the government of California at the moment to investigate them. Uh, uh, Kenton mentioned the the magic word insurance. Uh, this is probably, uh, thank God for the private litigation system and uh, common law claims and the interest of insurers uh, in these issues. Because if there were, uh, if there were people who were, who suffered uh, injury or damage as a result of this, and 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 there is a, a, a an appetite uh, on their part to litigate or to investigate on the part of the insurance companies claims that have been presented, uh, that is more likely than at this point actions by other by either federal or state prosecutors or regulators to get to the to the facts to the truth because alas there was a federal state and corporate partnership here uh that simply i think ended up making bad bets uh if if you if you follow the paper trail i rather suspect that pj and e followed 
the guidance and the instructions they were given by California regulators, but that presupposes that California regulators knew what they were doing. That is not money on which I would place, uh, that's not a bet on which I would place serious money. Thank you very much for your call, uh, David. Uh, Peter, I want to go to you and, and, and spend the next couple of minutes talking with everyone about what should we as citizens be demanding now of our government as it relates to tightening up the cybersecurity defenses of the United States? I mean, I think people, again, uh, all sides of the ideological spectrum should be calling their representatives and saying, we want a modern, secure, and efficient infrastructure. And that doesn't just mean tightening up you know, our cybersecurity, although, I mean, it's, it's kind of shocking that you have all your guests agreeing overwhelmingly on, this, on, on an issue that, yeah, like we should have better cybersecurity across our, our infrastructure and across the private entities that service it and, and support it. Um, so I think that's what we need to be doing. I mean, there needs to be an, you know, an outcry um, that, you know, that actually our leaders listen to. And it should be done at the state level. It should be done at the federal level. Um, because, you know, as much as, you know, people want to paint China as kind of like uh, the next big, like, enemy or whatever, you know, China um, has done a really good job modernizing their infrastructure in a very short time. I invite people to look at what China's done in terms of building a high-speed rail in, in 10 years. Um, 10 years, they've basically built a high-speed rail across the, across the country. Um, we're going to be left behind. I mean, 20, at the end of the day, we're going to be left behind. 20 years ago, at least on this program, there was a guest. Uh, his name was Lou Cook. And, and Lou Cook was a, was a critic of the intelligence community then, uh, very, very liberal. And he basically said that the problem when we discussed similar issues 20 years ago, he basically said, our hackers just aren't as good as the hackers around the world. We have a bunch of guys uh, in the FBI who don't know uh, their, their rear end from a hole in the wall. And, and they're responsible, and they go to work, and they wear their suits, and they all look alike, and they all look like they're, they're cut out of the same, you know, same you know, cookie cutter. And these are guys that are comparing, and they're competing against hackers from around the world who wear no shoes, they don't bathe. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm painting a, a dramatic picture of the difference in, in yeah. the hackers then and now. But he basically said that we're, we're never going to be able yeah. to hook up because, or catch up because the hackers around the world play by a different set of rules, and here we are. It's 20 years later. Did, did Lou Cook have something? Uh, was he on to something? One, one thing, um, uh, Bruce, very quickly. I mean, where are the like sharpest technological you know, minds coming out of colleges and universities? Where are they going in America right now? They're going to Silicon Valley. Right. They're figuring out a way to further monetize you know, the fact that you clicked on this pixel rather than that pixel. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's gobbling up all of that all of that sort of like top talent and driving, you know, social media and Silicon Valley. Not so in a lot of the rest of the world where, you know, when there is someone who comes out who has that like ability, you know, they can either find a career in public service or like, you know, the government's notice and they, they engage that person and see what can we do with that person. Um, I know there's recruiting obviously in our NSA, CIA, et cetera, but it's really hard to tell someone who's looking at, you know, a few hundred grand right out of college or university and bonus and stock options, forego that and help America have, you know, better cyber warfare. Kendon McCarthy, your reaction to that? Is this a problem that we have? No, I totally agree. There's, 
Yeah, it is a problem because it's 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 hard to convince someone to go to Los Alamos, you know, for sixty two k a year in the high desert of New Mexico, rather than to Google, where he could be a millionaire by the time he's thirty. So the, the the incentives are a little bit different. So there's an asymmetry of of motivations and incentives. How do you get that skill set? into a Manhattan Project-like system. And Joe, that has to come from, sadly, from, from government regulations. Joe Morris, does, does government have to do more and invest more so they can get a higher quality of hacker for us? I, I, I agree with, uh, with Kenton and with Peter as to the nature of the problem, but I disagree 180 degrees on the nature of the solution. The solution is to incentivize the private sector to invest its resources into the solution of this problem. And if you want the problem solved in America, that's where the problem problem is going to have to be solved. We cannot count on the government to do it. We cannot count on the government to regulate us out of this mess. We cannot count on the government to spend us out of this mess. It, it needs to be- Google? Uh, it, needs, it needs to be a question of, of, of um, Americans in the private sector finding a profit motive, a competitive profit motive to, 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 to beef up uh, security. It means, it means uh, uh, unleashing uh, the, the, that part of the private sector, the McAfee uh, uh, part of the industry, uh, to uh, allow them to take advantage of the brains coming out of American universities and colleges, the people who are tinkering in their basements. Phil, do you agree with that? No, I, th I think that there's something missing there that you're still going to need regulation because there's still going to be companies that are going to do the cost-benefit to say, yeah, maybe we'll do it. I mean, you see auto companies do this all the time in, in terms of how they approach recalls. Yeah, we might recall it if we see that that cost of not recalling is going to be more than of, of us doing this recall. So there's always this cost benefit analysis. So there's when there's going to be a market failure like that, this is just simple economics there has to be government intervention in terms of regulation. We've got a pause. In, in finding better cyber folks, you're going to need to to just market it better. Maybe we got to, guys, I got to interrupt. I got to interrupt. We're, we're out of time for hour number one. We'll be back with hour number two. Don't go away. We stopped the Middle East. We got to solve that problem before we go off the air tonight. Some news is about their opinions. We believe the news should give you the facts without bias, so you can form your own. We believe in news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America to give you the information you need. Everyone calls it the news, but we'll actually deliver on it seven nights a week in primetime. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. News Nation, it's your news, your nation. 
Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ag Council. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog and new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. This is Bruce Dumont. Hour number two of Beyond the Beltway starts from WCGO Radio in Evanston, Illinois. Nice to have you with us on Smart Talk Radio this evening. And uh, we are joined this evening by Phil Beverly. He is an administrator at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Peter Hanna joins us. He is with the Chicago Kent College of Law. And uh, that's where he is a professor. And his area of expertise is cybersecurity. Kenton McCarthy is a financial advisor. And he joins us from his palatial home in Arizona and has been a guest on this program for many years. And Joe Morris joins us. Uh, He is the former Assistant Attorney General of the United States of America, and he joins us in studio, and it's nice to have you with us. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the program we uh, we have a, a long list of very important issues. We probably could have done two hours on any one of them this evening, but we're going to switch gears now to the major international story of this uh, past uh, 10 days, and that is uh, the situation uh, in Israel and Gaza and uh, the, the flare-up again between uh, the uh, Israeli and Palestinian forces. And I want to go right around the table, first of all, and get everybody's just basic assessment of this latest uh, uh, significant brush uh, in this relationship of two entities that uh, doesn't seem ever to move towards a solution. And I'm going to begin with you, uh, Phil Beverly. What do you what do you take of uh, what's happening now in the Middle East? 
I'm I'm really disturbed by the the loss of life, especially when it's children, whether they be Israeli or Palestinian. When children get caught in the middle of of adults not being able to be reasonable, I always find that problematic. I, I'm also really surprised that that nobody that and I've been following the coverage from a variety of angles that nobody's really mentioned the the domestic is Israeli domestic political angle here because I, you're not going to be able to convince me that that Netanyahu isn't doing this to to be able to shift just the smallest percentage of that electorate to get him to be prime minister, to keep him out of prison. And what better way than, than have that as sort of one motivation? The other motivation, why not take out some, some Hamas leadership while we're at it? Because Hamas has always been an obstacle to, to any sort of peace between Israel and, and Gaza and the West Bank. And why not destabilize them while, while we're at it? So I think those are the two things that are going on, that there's a, a domestic agenda that Netanyahu has personally and is willing to do anything to not have to go on trial. And there's the, the, the security angle that, that they have as well. Kenton McCarthy, do you agree with any of that assessment? I, I agree with bits and pieces, but still this is a, this is a head scratcher to me because I try to pay attention to the subtext and what's going on in the background. The Trump administration made a huge pivot away from uh, Shiite Iran to Sunni Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states to the point where despite Jared Kushner, they actually did a good job in rounding up a cohesive alliance that that behind the scenes included Israel. So I call it Team Sunni. I don't know if, if Hamas is a proxy for Iran, which is Team Shia, I don't know what's in it for them to now pick a fight with Israel when there's such a close alliance with Team Sunni. I, I, I don't know how long KSA can stay out of this. I don't know how long the UAE states stay out of this. It just, it doesn't make sense as far as the motivations, what they're trying to accomplish because Biden has shifted back to Iran. Has, has, they've got a soft spot for Iran, which is on the Shia side. Trump had a huge coalition that he created on the Sunni side. I'm still confused as to why Iran thinks it's in their interest to have their proxy start lobbing missiles into Israel, unless they're trying to create some civil disrest or political unrest that Phil may have mentioned inside of Israel to crack, to crack a BB next administration. Joe Morris, your assessment, you are a longtime observer of the Middle East. Uh, your reaction to uh, what your two colleagues have referenced. It's been a long time. A lot of time. Um, it, there, there certainly is a domestic political angle to this, but it's not Israeli domestic politics. It's uh, Palestinian domestic politics. The uh, present government of the, P, of the Palestinian administration is a PLO-based administration under President Abbas. Uh, elected once, never again another election. There was an election that was actually scheduled to be held this year in the Palestinian areas. But once again, uh, uh, Mr. Abbas realized that Hamas would win that election, not just in Gaza, as they have done, but also in the West Bank. Uh, so he canceled the election. Uh, Hamas is has launched this with the support of uh, Iran. 
there was, there's no incentive for Mr. Netanyahu to, to, to have triggered this. He gains nothing. If anything, it's more dangerous for him. Uh, there was an interesting er- time in, the, in the, uh, this most recent Israeli election uh, when Arab parties participating vigorously uh, in the Israeli election for the first time made, made themselves willing to, to vote for the institution of an Israeli government, that is to be part of a coalition in the Knesset that would put into power either Mr. Netanyahu or his opponents, and they allowed themselves to be put into play and be bargained with by both sides. We're still waiting for those chips to fall. And in the middle of that comes the interruption then of the domestic politics of the of the Palestinian administration. Iran is unquestionably behind this. They, they fund uh, Palestinian jihad. Uh, they fund Hamas. They fund Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, which has joined the game, lobbying a few hundreds of missiles into Israel. These thousands of missiles, rockets that are being fired out of Gaza, were bought and paid for by Iran, smuggled in over the last many years. It's taken a long time to build up this armament uh, in, in Gaza from which most of the rockets are being fired. Uh, I, 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 perhaps the most inflammatory thing I could possibly say tonight is, and I believe it is true, that many of those rockets were bought and paid for by cash that was airlifted into Iran uh, by Barack Obama in his ill-conceived uh, uh, Iran deal back in 2015, uh, the J P- uh, Joint uh, uh, Agreement uh, mm-hmm. uh, on on Iran that from which President Trump withdrew. I want to get Peter's uh, response. Uh, Peter, uh, your response to uh, uh, this 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 current battle begin? over there because uh, uh, you uh, you were born in Egypt. You uh, you have probably grown up hearing this uh, debate around your uh, kitchen table, and uh, you now join us with your assessment. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting one. And it's funny because I think in, in the conversation or the discussion we've been having, it's mainly been about stuff other than what Israel is doing right now, which is obviously destroying uh, you know, buildings, property, killing kids, killing adults, killing recklessly. And um, look, terrorism of any kind is never uh, an option. Um, and, you know, firing rockets into a populated area, even if they're rudimentary, you know, uh, Iranian or whatever rockets um, is not acceptable and, you know, warrants a response. But what I've seen my entire life is, uh, you know, the state of Israel responding with, and I mean, they, they admit this freely, um, overwhelming force every time. Um, and it's, you know, ultimately all that does is kill a bunch of kids and, and generate sympathy for the Palestinian cause and further alienate Israel until the next, you know, suicide bombing or terroristic activity happens and the cycle begins again. So, I mean, my entire life has been spent living in basically like a never ending cycle of this sort of stuff happening, just suffering and suffering and suffering. America has ever been particularly serious about achieving peace there other than, you know, Carter and Camp David. Everything since then has been sort of a disaster from Reagan, you know, you know, uh, tugging tail and leaving Lebanon. We got to pause. We got to pause, but we will be back with more conversation. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov slash COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
A few years ago, Steve Faircow's lungs were failing. I don't think I had more than a couple weeks to live. That's when Steve received a lung transplant made possible by an organ donor. Now Steve can do things he never imagined, like climbing 94 floors to the top of a skyscraper. I never knew that breathing could feel this good. It's an incredible gift. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back, and uh, I want to pick up on one thing that uh, Phil Beverly had to say, and that he, he, he was uh, mentioning that uh, part of this might be the need uh, for Netanyahu uh, to get some political points. Now, you dismissed that. Can you run that bias again, why, why this would not be a, a gamble on his part? We've just had an election. Um, what's, what's going on right now is an effort to cobble together a coalition to, to get to 61 seats. The Knesset mm-hmm. has 120 seats. It takes 61 seats to form a government. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu right now is in the middle, as, as are all the parties, uh, of negotiating efforts to, to try to cobble together that majority. There's nothing about this that advantages him among the 120 or 119 other voters mm-hmm. in the Knesset about building that majority he's working with. This is, this is merely a headache as far as he's concerned. Uh, the only the only parties who are advantage here are Hamas and its internal its internal competition uh, within the Palestinian administration with uh, Abbas and the PLO types, and of course Iran, whose goal is to destabilize the the entire region. Uh, uh, their objectives are not terribly mysterious, except uh, in, in the, to the extent that they they seem to be somewhat at times suicidal. Uh, but that's in the nature of, of Iranian extremism to begin with. Now, Egypt is uh, trying to uh, to find, uh, you know, a, a ceasefire situation here. Uh, how did they get involved with, in, with it, uh, Peter? And uh, what unique skills do they bring to this uh, table of uh, warring partners within their region of uh, activity? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I think uh, Egypt being obviously having Camp David, uh, having signed the Camp David Accords, um, and having normalized relations with Israel a long time ago, and being one of the you know countries that receives aid under the same you know deal really as uh, Israel from the United States has obviously a stake in the region. And if you want to talk about like you know d- you know sort of local power politics, you know wants to be part of the of the solution, but you know ultimately the solution has to come from Israel. And I think as a government, uh, as it's composed. Uh, it's never going to happen. They, this is what the Israeli government wants. Is this a situation based on, we've only got about a week of it uh, to deal with, Phil, but given the the pictures that have come out uh, around the world and the, the destruction of the, uh, of the journalistic building, the AP building, uh, with warning uh, by Israel, uh, but again, everybody around the world probably saw the collapsing uh, you know, building this morning on their television sets. Is this uh, who's winning the battle of the hearts and minds of the of the public around the world, uh, given the way in which the story has been covered thus far? In your view, it sort of depends who you want to who you want to support. Right. If you want to support the innocents, innocent people who are caught in the middle of this this particular crisis, then uh, Israel's taken is getting a black eye here. The, the thing that, that is really interesting, I heard a lot about last week, and less and less as this situation has progressed, is what initiated it in the first place. Now, it's my understanding, and I, the, I was in Israel a couple of years ago, and it was, a, it was a great learning experience 
for how complicated that region is. In, in just talking to friends that I have that are Israeli, I got a, a very different perspective on how really complicated the politics are there. So I go into it thinking, oh, you just need to do A or B because Americans seem to be sort of problem solvers and it's, it's much more complicated than that, right? And so I, I thought that what precipitated the entire event was forced evictions of Palestinians in East Jerusalem. Now, it seems to me if that was the precipitating event, then any political entity on the side of Palestinians would need to respond in some way. The, the, their hand is gonna be forced. They can't sit back and go, oh yeah, go ahead and evict them. We're, not, we're, we're gonna maintain the peace here. And so it seems like it's a, it's a win for Israel because now we're not even gonna talk about what caused it in the first place, which was the Netanyahu government enforcing forced evictions in East Jerusalem. So I, I, I don't know that anybody's winning necessarily. It, it's, it's a mess. And I, I got to disagree with, with Mr. Morris on this point that they've had four elections in Israel in the last two years with an inability to form a government because of the, the polarization there. And so if I'm Netanyahu, I'm thinking, okay, if we got to go for a fifth election, I have to get the majority. And I just need to, to be able to convince some percentage of the electorate to go with Likud this time, just so I can get the majority and we can, we can establish a government and not have to go through this again and bring some stability back to that political system. That's just my, my sort of American outsider sort of thinking around it. The flaw, uh, go ahead. If I may say <clears throat> the flaw in that analysis is there was no way for Mr. Netanyahu to pull the trigger to release a thousand uh, uh, rockets out of out of Gaza uh, by Hamas. Uh, the sad fact here is you're you're, you're right. Uh, Israel is taking it on the chin as it always does uh, when it has to defend legitimately against. Uh, you you cannot sit by and allow thousands and thousands of rockets to be fired at your civilian population. You have to take out the places where the rockets from which the rockets are being fired. Alas for Hamas, uh, which is absolutely criminal enterprise. Uh, the death of innocent civilians is not a sad byproduct. It's a feature. It's no accident. The rockets are fired from schools, from, from orphanages, from hospitals, from mosques, precisely to draw Israeli retaliation to stop the rocket firing against those sites, knowing, intentionally knowing, that with the incoming Israeli defensive actions, there will be deaths of innocent children. That's precisely the point. These are martyrs in, in, the, in the eyes of Hamas. And that's the, that's the, that is, an, I think, a, a war crime. A, a, something absolutely despicable. Uh, Kenton uh, Kenton McCarthy, I want to ask you, in the court of public opinion, uh, in in searching for the hearts and minds of those uh, around the world, based on on what you've seen thus far over the last, let's say, five years, do you think there's a softening of support for Israel amongst the masses because the Palestinians and the PLO and everyone in that region— have have been able to um, merchandise the, the 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 murder and the mayhem that has been thrust on them by Israel. We need you to unmute yourself. Oh, quite the contrary, Bruce. Um, a couple of points. First of all, time is not a friend of Hamas. Time is a friend to Israel in this situation. 
the longer this goes on, the more likely Team Sunni and the KSA and even Egypt are going to step in and do something to further isolate Hamas. That risk runs against Iranian interests. The other point I'd like to make is that Hamas has to know that the response from Israel is going to be blunt, it's going to be overwhelming, and it's going to be sustained as long as they need to sustain it. So why do they do this? I think they're playing that public opinion angle because they have now seen that another ally of BLM is the pro-Palestinian movement. So these riots and these protests you're seeing around the world are done by the same actors as BLM and Antifa. So they're probably leveraging that protest movement and trying to see if they can sway Western opinion, but I don't think it's gonna work. So I, let me, let me. did I hear you right that Black Lives Matter is now connected to Hamas? Is, is that what you're I think, saying? Is no, that an I, ideological I didn't say they're thing connected or to, is that a practical thing? No, I, I think it's a, there, it's a convenient partnership to say, look, I've got, I've got this protest mechanism in place. I've got this protest infrastructure in place. It's easy for Hamas to glom onto that globally and say, you, you hear the words apartheid being thrown around from AOC and the squad. So some of these protests are coalescing into both a BLM theme as well as an anti-Israel theme because Israel is seen as kind of a conservative ally of the U.S., so it's really con it's convenient for them to protest against Israel. That's the only angle I can see Hamas trying to play, and I don't think it's going to. I don't think it's going to pan out for them. By the way, let me just report: uh, I live in uh, downtown Chicago, and outside my uh, window today. Uh, uh, I saw one of the largest uh, parades, uh, protest parades, uh, in recent memory. Uh, they were marching on uh, Wacker Drive uh, past Trump Tower. They didn't stop at Trump Tower, but they went on, and it was uh, it, it was a very, I would say, several thousand people uh, chanting. Uh, one thing was, hey, 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 ho, Israel has got to go, was one thing I heard from, from my window. But again, uh, I, I didn't see any advanced publicity about what was going to happen. But again, this was uh, this was a protest in Chicago, and I would assume that there were protests uh, around uh, around the world. Two two okay. things are certainly I, true. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, no, Joe. 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 Two things are certainly true that can help us make the BLM uh, connection. One is uh, the the BLM website, uh, the, the the website run by the three women. Yes, uh, who initially organized BLM. Uh, years before George Floyd ever died, I mean, years before, uh, f four or five years ago, was replete with anti-Israeli uh, material. It was mm -hmm. they were clearly focused on this issue uh, in a in a way that was very hostile to Jews in the Middle East in general and to Israel in particular. Um, uh, second, uh, I have also seen the the Chicago demonstrations, and some of the same faces that you see on other issues, uh, uh, BLM, Antifa issues, some of the same people in leadership positions mm -hmm. in the Chicago street dem demonstrations on those occasions are also the same people that one sees in the street demonstrations in Chicago on Palestinian issues. Mm -hmm. there, there, is, there is an overlap of personnel leadership. Okay. Uh, we'll come back. Let anyone that wants to respond to that can do so after we break. 1-800-723-8029. When we come back, 
We're going to talk about Liz Cheney. She had a rough week last week, and we're going to let everybody respond to it when we continue from Chicago. I'm Bruce Dumas. use opioids to manage pain. Pain can be unrelenting, overwhelming, and all-consuming. So why do so many of us try to manage pain only from the palm of our hands? Doctor-prescribed opioids are appropriate in some cases, but they just mask the pain. And reliance on opioids has led to the worst drug crisis in American history. That's why the CDC recommends safer alternatives, like physical therapy, to manage pain. Physical therapists treat pain through movement, hands-on care, and patient education. No warning labels required. And by increasing physical activity, you can also reduce your risk of other chronic diseases. Pain is personal, but treating pain takes teamwork. When it comes to your health, you have a choice. Choose more movement and better health. Choose physical therapy. Visit MoveForwardPT.com to find a physical therapist in your area. This message is brought to you by the American Physical Therapy Association. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks for joining us tonight. 1-800-723-8289. I want to begin this one with uh, Kenton McCarthy because you are a, uh, uh, you and Joe are card-carrying Republicans and our Democrats may want to ch- uh, chip away on this uh, conversation as well. But uh, uh, Liz Cheney, um, she decided that she was going to vote for the impeachment of Donald Trump. And uh, a lot of her colleagues didn't like it, but uh, they voted whether or not she could stay on. And they said, OK, you can stay on. And then uh, after that, uh, there was growing support within the Republican caucus that maybe she should be ousted because she's not singing from the same songbook as uh, uh, as Speaker McCarthy or Speaker-to-be McCarthy, uh, or Congressman McCarthy. And uh, and so last week, uh, she got bumped. She got kicked out. <laughs> Leadership has changed. She has been very vociferous in her denunciation of uh, Donald Trump. She specifically thinks that the Republican Party is making a huge mistake by living the lie that Donald Trump, in her opinion, has perpetrated on the party and the country. Uh, Kenton McCarthy, you've been a Republican for a long time. What is your response to the way in which Liz Cheney has been treated? Uh, actually, quite fairly, to be sure. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you solve a problem like Liz? So either, either she's trying to resurrect the Cheney name or she's finally found a Cheney that is actually in favor by the establishment media. But I go back to, you mentioned that she voted for the impeachment. I think she was one of the, she's one of the few Republicans who actually had the temerity to vote the way a lot of Republicans wanted to vote. Mm-hmm. What has, what they finally learned, I think what Kevin McCarthy has learned, if he's learned anything, is that there is a big disconnect between the GOP establishment in D.C. versus the Trump movement out there, which is 90 to 95% of GOP voters. Mm-hmm. So it became untenable. There was, it was a pressure cooker with the voters because now the voters want scalps. And if Cheney needed to go to save 
McCarthy's scalp, she needed to go. He's next on the chopping block. I don't, I don't see this movement, this cleansing movement, stopping anytime soon when it comes to GOP feckless leadership. Do you think that her days as a member of the House are limited uh, because of voters back in Wyoming? Is Trump going to use his power? What do you think Trump will do? She's probably got to, you know, they could. They could, they could bounce her out, and she's probably got a nice, cushy job at the Bush Institute in Dallas waiting for her. But I go back, one of the things that I mentioned last year on this show was there was a Steve Bannon interview several years ago when someone, I think it was with The New Yorker, and when they asked him, what, what gave us Trump? Did Obama give us Trump? How do you explain Trump or Trumpism? And, he, and Bannon said, no, actually Obama didn't give us Trump. George W. Bush and Dick Cheney gave us Trump. So I think she's just, she's stung by the fact that, that the voters have rejected establishment GOP. She wants to dig her heels in. God bless her. It gets her all over Chris Wallace. But I think in the end, the voters in Wyoming are going to tire of this, and she's going to have to find somewhere else to to uh, rest your heels. Joe Morris, so you have been an observer and participant in Republican politics for well over four decades. Um, uh, is she through or is she the, uh, is she going to be the leader of a movement that has life to it? Well, she will run for reelection in Wyoming. She will have a pro Trump, a Trump supported opponent in the primary. We will test there. Kent McCarthy's averment that 90 to 95% of Republican voters uh, are pro Trump in this context. I rather, I predict she'll be renominated and returned by the voters of Wyoming to the U S house. The larger question is, where's the future of the Republican Party in a post-Trump era? We are in a post-Trump era as long as Mr. Trump's name is on the lips of people in a contentious sort of way. It benefits only Democrats. Uh, I think that Kenton McCarthy's efforts to create a Trump, to extract from the Trump experience a Trumpism that can be explained in terms of articulable points of policy and values, articulable policies, uh, that in some coherent way uh, carry the Trump label is a very valuable exercise and is a serious contribution to the future of American politics and, and both the Republican Party and the conservative movements. It's not an easy exercise because so much of, of Trumpism was bound up in the personality of Mr. Trump and his uh, in immense faith in himself and his ability to do deals uh, without being able to explain principles that would allow others to replicate the efforts or to articulate the principles behind them in his support. That was a major problem. I am a, a strong advocate of two principles that Ronald Reagan taught our party. One is his celebrated 11th commandment, thou shalt not speak ill of thy fellow Republican. I have nothing to say about Mr. Trump other than to thank him for his service to our party and to our country. I think it was substantial. I think it is behind us. Uh, the other Reagan principle is that someone who agrees with me 80% of the time is my friend and not my enemy. And I think all Republicans, in fact, all Americans would do well to give pay some serious attention to that Reaganite principle, she is she is saying, however, that how do you build a a Republican Party for the future that is based on the lie that this election was stolen? And if you are a Republican and you believe that, and you're following the dictates of Donald Trump, who has been the leader perpetuator of that uh, of that statement, that you are not 
you're not playing. You're not playing fair, part, Kenton. Part, oh, go ahead, Joe, and then part, I want to hear Part of Kenton. the dysfunctionality of American politics for the last several years is that both parties are working on the basis of lies. Uh, the Democratic Party for the last four years has struggled under the under the lie that it has perpetrated that the election of 2016 was won by Donald Trump on the basis of his collusion with Russian sources. A complete lie. Uh, that lie was driven by the by the Clinton dossier and the the absolute. Uh, uh, prevarications of leaders of the American FBI and the security services and members of Congress. It was false. Uh, and, and it was an absolutely poisonous uh, intrusion into American politics. And, and, and the Democratic Party has suffered for it. It's, it's barely hanging on to a majority in, in, in Congress. It, 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 after the Trump experience, it should, it should have huge majorities. Republicans are similarly suffering uh, uh, the, the, the effects of a lie that the, 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 something about the election of 2020 that was improperly measured by the votes cast by Americans. Yes, there were changes in the voting system. We do need reform of our election laws. Uh, the Democrats changed the system, the voting system in the course of 2020, and mastered those changes better than Republicans can. Ha- did. That doesn't mean that it'll happen in the next cycle. Phil, Phil Beverly, do you agree with the, the point that we, we really have two elections now? that are, are doubtful in the minds of, uh, uh, if not a majority, a large number of people who, who vote in this country? I, that it was know, 16 I, and, and I, 20? As a, as a Democrat, believe two things happened in 2016. Donald Trump won the Electoral College, which is our system. Parentheses, because Hillary Clinton was an awful candidate who was whose hubris got in the way of doing what was required to win in three critical states, parentheses closed. And would you say what well, 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 the would Russians you, well, 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 did interfere Phil, in the election? Would you say because would the you Russians say that, would you say the situation in mean that that's why Donald Trump won? So when I say that the Russians interfered, I resent it when Republicans tell me the words that I say what I'm intending to mean. What I intend to say and what I mean is the Russians interfered in the 2016 election, period, full stop. And Donald Trump won the Electoral College, full stop. That's what happens. So I'm not. I'm and not Hillary Clinton was a bad. And Hillary say, Clinton oh, only won because of the Russians. I didn't say that. Phil and Hillary Clinton was a bad candidate. The, Hillary Clinton was, was a bad no candidate. Election fraud. He lost by eight million votes. End of. Can we move on now? No, we can't because the cult of personality that is the Republican Party won't allow us to move on. Because every opportunity that the guy gets, the election was stolen from me. The election was stolen from me, and that's a lie. Republicans who want to challenge can, can I that? can I remind Good everyone ahead. Kenton McCarthy go ahead can I re, can I remind everyone that I live in Maricopa County go ahead Maricopa is Maricopa is the epicenter of of really crappy elections so for Liz Cheney to go out and say it's a definitive lie when at the same time the audit going on in Maricopa County is finding so many, so many irregularities. They're pulling on a thread, and everyone is running. Everyone is panicking out here. Are you serious? The left wing. Are you serious? Yes. Didn't yeah. they do five I'm, audits I'm, before this this Trump supported company gets dragged in by state Republicans? They did audits, or, or, or did did I miss something? And, one at a time. One at a time. One at a time. In doing audits, 
Go ahead, Kenton. Do you expect me to believe them over Phil, the five previous ones? Phil, you're talking. Come on, man. Phil, every, you're talking every, through every, the stop sign. So please let the discovering. Everything that they're discovering hints at irregularities. And the more that they get pushed back by the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors and the media calling this a joke, the more they find. If this plays out and Maricopa County then becomes ground zero for voter fraud and irregularities that swung a state, I think the next domino to fall is going to be Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, all these states that have dominion-based irregularities We've got to are pause. going to be pivotal. Kenton, we've got to pause. 1-800-723-8029. I'm Bruce okay. Dumont. One more segment to come. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Bruce Dumont back for our final segment, and uh, we've not heard from uh, Peter Hanna. Peter, you are a uh, card-carrying uh, Democrat, or at least progressive. I don't know whether you want to weigh in on this or not, but uh, uh, where would you put uh, Liz Cheney and the whole uh, the fight for the control of the Republican Party as a as a as a liberal? Are you are you uh, cheering that on because it's only going to divide the party? And I would say, uh, again, I, I, I definitely take issue, not a liberal uh, or certainly conservative, but progressive or leftist. Um, but yeah, Liz Cheney is, you know, she's maybe a media darling now because I think uh, both parties are really much more similar than they are different. So there's, you know, a desire in whatever you want to call it, the establishment the system, what Trump talked about, what Bernie Sanders talked about to keep power sort of going back and forth and back and forth. So and Liz Cheney is establishment you know, as they get. Yes. So this is a person who, uh, you know, wholeheartedly supported the Iraq war has had some horrendous and, and awful votes. And, you know, I, I, I mean, it's just kind of a strange situation because you have a bunch of, you know, with all due respect to everyone on the panel, you know, kind of like boomers in, in power and, in, you know, the Republican establishment who really think that this Trump thing's got legs. Um, it's clearly got that got in the white house, but you know, what, what, what is really any, like, what is, you know, Trumpism, other than just sort of like hating liberals and being doing what they don't want to do. It's like a faux populism. So, I mean, if the Republican Party wants to remain like to have some meaningful identity, it, it's going to have to congeal around something. What they've done in the past, like with the Tea Party, is basically they incorporate the organic growths within the, the party as part of the party platform. The Democratic Party doesn't do that. The Democratic Party is just solidly neoliberal all the way. Um, so, you know, I don't take any joy in seeing it. It just kind of 
silly infighting where everyone is kind of missing the bigger picture, which is what are you as a, and both parties are missing it. What are you as a political party offering to the American people as a vision of improving your lives in a meaningful way? From a like, me- otherwise, it's just DC nonsense drama. Who gives a, a crap? From a from a media perspective, uh, the media would love to continue to weaken the Republican Party. They would love to see a split, and they they've been talking about a split. Liz Cheney has gotten more pro publicity on the national media in the last three months than her her father did in 50 years in in politics. So she is, at the moment, she is the media darling. She is the one that's standing up, and she is sticking her finger into Donald Trump's eyes, and the media absolutely loves it, even though 90% of the Republican base may not like it. I'm, I'm wondering whether or not, however, as this story moves forward, whether or not there might be some legs to what Liz Cheney is saying. I mean, the Republicans, be they suburban women or not, those people that did not vote for Donald Trump, because in their view, he was a bad candidate for re-election, they didn't like him as a person, uh, do they represent a, a, a great uh, number of people that have to be brought back into the political process to vote Republican? And are they, are, will they be more likely to vote for someone who thinks and talks like Liz Cheney, then thinks and talks and speaks like Donald Trump. Kenton McCarthy, what do you think? Uh, I, I think Trump Trumpism will last. I don't know how long Liz Cheney is going to last. It wouldn't surprise me if, you know, the framework for this bipartisan commission on January 6th, the whole trespassing thing of the, of the Capitol, mm-hmm was announced and there's no sitting congressman or senator who's going to be allowed on the panel. It wouldn't surprise me if she just decided to quit just so she could qualify to be on that panel on that commission to further put a thumb in, in Trump's eye. But I think the, the whole motivation for Liz Cheney, she's a proxy for the DC establishment model that wants to further disconnect Trump voters from Trump the person and from Trumpism, more importantly. For her father. And I don't think it's going to work. For her father. I'm sorry, or her father. Right. Joe, do you right. think she so? doesn't like the fact she that she's stalking like horse for her, her father? father treated by Trump? No, her father, her father is history. Uh, and uh, she, she is her own person. She will not resign from Congress to go on the commission. Uh, that would, uh, first of all, I don't, think, I don't think that anybody in the Congress would be appointing members of the commission would appoint Liz Cheney uh, to the commission. No, her, 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 role is as a representative, and that's what puts her front and center in the media. Uh, Yes, I think, Bruce, your analysis of what the media are doing in this instance is exactly the same as what the media have always done. They they fix on that Republican whom they think at that particular moment uh, is likely to be most destructive of the of of whatever is happening on the conservative or Democrat or Democrat. Well, like they like the media likes deconstruction. Yes, they, they like turncoats. They do like turncoats, and that's exactly what Donald Trump was in their eyes five years yes. ago, when uh, when the the mainstream media could not get enough of Donald Trump. Right. Uh, well, of course, that changed when Donald Trump won the election. At that, then then of course the media couldn't get enough of anybody who was opposing Donald Trump. Uh, that's that's in the nature of of the American media, and that's a pretty sad commentary on the nature of the American media. It also needs to be asking serious questions about how to serve the public interest. It has not found a good model for doing that in our time. Is she good for the body body politic, Phil Beverly? Are you cheering on the sidelines for her to get no, more publicity? I, I have always-
always um, believed that for a healthy democracy to function, there has to be a loyal opposition, a functional opposition. I, I was really sort of concerned in the in the 90s when uh, when the Republicans took the House that uh, Bob Michael had retired from the House at that point. And that meant that there were literally no Republicans who had any experience in governance, in being the majority. And I, I judge that a lot of the stumbles that Republicans have made, particularly in the House, have been over a lack of experience over time. And, and, and uh, along the same path, there's been this polarization of the country and you've been getting people who are more concerned about ideology than governance. And that's gonna be problematic. You need to have two healthy parties. And right now, I don't think you have any healthy parties. Okay. And that's, um, not, that's not good for any of us. On that and note- the, And the final thing about that- Very quickly, Phil. And I don't blame the parties, I blame us because they just don't show up in DC. We put okay. them there. Okay. Bill Beverly, on that note, we say farewell to you. Thank you very much for being with us. Peter Hanna, thank you for joining us this evening, as well as Joe Morris in studio with me and Kenton McCarthy from the great state of Arizona. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. Our thanks to Nancy, to Nancy Cadigan uh, for helping produce this program this evening. Until next Sunday night at the same time, good night from Evanston, Illinois. hope. Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games, but I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours, that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. 
My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership.